I haven't really got any funny stories to start with today. So I'm just going to start straight in there. Verse 14 asks an incredibly provocative question. And what I'd, I'd like us to do is actually take a look at, at the response to that provocative question and the second half of that passage first, and then come back in and look at what uh, is at the beginning of chapter 2. But verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Our understanding is that that our salvation is by faith alone. That's what scripture teaches. And so we could find ourselves getting into a little bit of a misunderstanding here that seems to have a contradiction in Scripture. But actually, this is, this is part of a whole letter that sits within the whole canon of Scripture. And James is wrestling with something in particular here. I guess this passage comes particularly out of chapter 1 and what we looked at last week in terms of listening and doing not just nodding sagely and then just carrying on as if nothing was any different but actually it also follows on from the first part of the chapter which we'll deal with second if you'll bear with me and actually it's focusing on an issue that is perhaps summarized by chap by verse 12 which says this, verse 12 says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. James begins to explore how faith, without deeds, without working out of that faith, has no real value. Faith in isolation makes no sense. It's just an intellectual assent to something. But with a life that's lived and shaped by God. A life that, that is shaped, that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, that is life indeed. It's a little bit like, if you will, a glove. See, a glove is a, a very useful thing, but how often do we kind of see a glove just kind of discarded at the side of the road, looking a bit damp and forlorn? And you kind of think, I wonder where the other one is. I wonder who has looked and looked and looked and can't find that. That glove actually serves no purpose. This glove is useless, really, until I put my hand in it. And then the glove with the hand inside it, suddenly has a purpose. It suddenly is useful. And it's a, a limited analogy. But nonetheless, it's the kind of thing that I think James is wrestling with here and trying to get us to wrestle with. That actually faith, without doing something with it, is of no value. And James, in these um, last few verses of chapter 2, paints actually four scenarios to try to illustrate what he's trying to say. 
If you look, there's a scenario, verses 15 to 17. There's a brother or a sister without clothes. Then there's another scenario, verses 18 to 20, where somebody says, I have faith. And he says, well, good. Even the demons believe. Then there's a third scenario where he just explores a little bit Abraham and how Abraham's faith and his actions came together and were vital and living. And then fourthly, there's the example of Rahab, the prostitute from Joshua chapter 2. Where again, she recognised God at work and did something about what she saw. And James is trying to, to just piece together this important thing that, that clearly the churches in those early days were, were facing. That maybe there, was, there were people that were just saying, well, you know, I, I, I believe in that. And yet their lives did not reflect that. Let's just take a little look at some of these scenarios. We can kind of pair them in different ways. And what I'd like us to do is to take a look at the first scenario and the last one. So where James says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? I want us to look at that one for a second in comparison with Rahab who offered lodging to spies who were coming to spy out her country. Because those two scenarios are kind of contrasting responses in relation to, to people, in relation to humans. See, in verses 15 to 17, you have a situation where somebody sees a need, nods sagely, waves them on their way, doesn't think to actually try and help. Something cold about that. Something slightly absent about that. And yet Rahab sees two men in need, two men that clearly have come from God. People that are, are, are searching out the promised land. She sees them. She doesn't just kind of say hello to them at the door and then say, on your bike. She sees they need shelter. She sees that they need to be hidden because their lives are in danger. And she doesn't just wish them well. She hides them up on her roof under the branches of flax. She puts herself out. She puts herself at risk because she sees something of God in them. So there's two very contrasting responses to two situations involving people. The other two scenarios, though, have something in common in as much as they're both responses to God. They both look at faith in relation to God. 
Verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. See, simply believing in God doesn't establish a relationship with God. Because even the demons believe. But notice what their response is. They shudder. They fear. Because they don't submit to God Almighty. Many, many people in our society, in our world, say, oh yeah, I believe in God. But that's about it. They don't do anything with that. They might even consider themselves religious and go along to church because they believe in God. But actually, even going to church doesn't really signify anything. There was a guy, a musician called Keith Green, who I once heard say, he was before my time, but I heard it on a CD. I I, I once heard it said that actually going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And it's true. I can say I believe in God, but it makes no difference to my life because I have no relationship. And actually, when I think of God, I shudder because I have no relationship. And that's the place for many people because there's absence of relationship. But then James comes to the heart, I think, in verse 21, where he asks us to consider Abraham, great man of faith in in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Great story of faith and frailty. But you see there, faith and action are knit closely together. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God's promises. And his response of faith put him right with God. This faith spurred him on to act in Genesis chapter 22 in the most incredible way. In in chapter 22 of Genesis, he was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. The son that he long awaited for. The son that should never, humanly speaking, have come. And when he came, he heard God speak and walked with Isaac. Amazing how, as you read that, read it later. Isaac and Abraham, they leave behind the folk that they travelled with to the place that they were going to sacrifice. And, and, and Abraham says, we are going to go away. We are going to offer sacrifices. And we are going to come back. You see, even though 
He knew that what he was going to have to do was just beyond our imagining. He had faith that somehow God would hold Isaac. Whether God would would restore him from death or restore him, he, he did not know, but he had faith. And he was ready to offer his son. His deeds were were needed, in a sense, to complete his faith. Verse 22 says just that. Abraham's faith and actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. A little bit like the hand and glove thing, coming together. So James is, is, I guess, I say simply saying, it's not that simple in many ways, it kind of goes through a whole lot of hoops, but James is saying that faith needs to be borne out in action. Our actions need to be what is distinctive about us if we're believers. And actually those actions may well run counter to what our human nature might say. And that's what brings us on to verses 1 to 13. That the actions of a believer may well run counter to what our human nature tells us. See, verses 1 to 4 paints a picture of our natural response. Bless him, Bevan, in his honesty, gave us a perfect example of that when Nathan and Jordan were stood here. One smart, one scruffy. Which would you prefer to talk to? I prefer... It was Nathan, wasn't it? It was smart. Because he was smart, because he looked handsome. Beautiful innocence in Bevan. But actually, that's our natural response, isn't it? Our natural thing is to to prefer the respectable, perhaps the influential, the safe person over one that is less appealing. And make sure, Tracy, Jordan knows that he is just as appealing as his brother. He really is, all right? Yes, he is, all right? (laughs) But he was just dressed in scruffy clothes. We, we don't like to see somebody that looks like they might be needy. They might require us to do something to help them. We say to ourselves, oh, I just haven't got the time. I haven't got the energy. I haven't got the expertise. But verse 5 gives God's response. So you don't need wealth or influence to be inheritors of God's kingdom. Simply need to love God. And actually verses 6 and 7, they kind of highlight the irony 
of our, our human nature and our natural inclination to, to welcome the kind of influential, the well-heeled, the, the one that, that looks like they may well be much more respectable. James says, you've insulted the poor. And yet, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Think of the early church. The powers that be did not like what was going on. The powers that be felt part threatened and part just disapproved of what was going on. Think Saul of Tarsus. Before he he came to faith in Jesus, changed his name to Paul, Saul was a powerful, influential man who persecuted early Christians, religiously sought to get rid of them. And that seems to be the kind of people that, that the early Christians were trying to curry favour with. And yet ignore those who are, are poor and humble. Think about the machinery of our society. The media. The government. All those folk that we kind of think, oh, it'd be great to, to get them involved. And don't get me wrong, it would, because God loves them. God loves people in powerful positions as well as people in lowly positions. That's not what this passage is saying. But we need to resist our human nature to to skew our our looking towards the attractive, towards the, the wealthy, towards the influential. And try to see with God's eyes. See, verse 8 comes back to the law that we spoke of last week. That law that has been planted in our hearts through Jesus. Fulfillment of the, 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 the prophecy in Jeremiah. That law that God has given us as a framework for life. Love your neighbour as yourself. Rich or poor, doesn't matter. Love your neighbour as yourself, whoever your neighbour may be. And remember Jesus in Matthew 22 adds to that, or precedes that with love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the law. That is the law that... that brings us to the kingdom of God. That is why it's called the royal law in verse 8. Relates, same word, basilia, as the word kingdom in verse 6. And it's found in scripture. It's found in in this book. And it's summarised in those two commands that Jesus gave. See, we love to kid ourselves that we're better off doing it our way. But without God's framework, 
when we fall, not if, when we fall, we're hopeless. We weave a web that, that ties us into knots and having said that we think we're free by doing X, Y and Z and ignoring God, we find ourselves even more in captivity, in bondage to sin. But if we submit ourselves to God's framework, well, where there should be judgment without mercy which is what we deserve. And just by the way, that's, that's not a vindictive statement there. That's not a statement of a callous God who is merciless. But actually, judgment without mercy, verse 13. Actually, we don't deserve mercy. Mercy is undeserved, isn't it? And so as we turn our backs on God, we deserve judgment. But in its place, when we submit to God's framework, when we submit to the Lord Jesus and ask his forgiveness, seek to follow him again, we receive mercy that is undeserved. See, James is speaking to believers speaking to to people who want to follow Jesus and he's saying we need to be obedient to God's law. Not to be enslaved but to be enabled to live as God made us. And if you're anything like me we sometimes balk at that call to obedience. We like to think that doing it our own way is the way of freedom. Freedom. That God's way is somehow an imposition on our freedom, particularly in 21st century Western society. Surely, we know how to be free without God's interference. But actually, to follow the royal law is to follow God's nature. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, we see that actually when we obey and follow God's law, so the Holy Spirit comes and enables us in response to our obedience. To say that we have faith and obey and act on it is vital. To say that we have faith and disobey is fatal. Let me say that again. To say that we have faith and obey, act upon our faith, that is vital, brings vitality and it is essential, vital. To say that we have faith and disobey, that's fatal. That's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for separation from God. So what does living out faith look like for you? 
Where are you needing to see people as God sees them? That's a hard question. Because we confront all sorts of different people in our daily walks. And some of them, it's jolly hard to see them as God sees them. Where are you seeing need and politely and conveniently ignoring it? (coughs) What's your life like in your home, in your workplace? Is it distinctive because of your faith? Because you are an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Maybe that's what faith looks like. As you live it out, don't just believe it, but do it. Maybe you're in that place of saying, well, yeah, I believe in God, but... And you dare take that step of surrendering yourself to Jesus I just simply say to you Jesus came and he died for each one of us and he rose again having conquered sin and conquered death took upon himself our sin and our punishment that we might live that we might live out faith with deeds that are distinctive. And I'd encourage you to respond to what Jesus has done for each of us. I would urge you to live according to the royal law, not because it's a restriction, but because it's a release into freedom.